Join us as we gather around the hedge, where we dig into technology, business, and culture with the finest minds in computer networking. Well, this is kind of an interesting show because I actually have three guests and no Tom today, which is okay. That happens from time to time. So let me run around the table. Mike and, oh, I'm not sure, Hedgehog. Uh, this is my, yeah, I'm Mark. I'm, I'm the chief hedgehog at Hedgehog. Okay. So Mark, why don't you start with Mark and tell us, Mark, like what you do and, and a little bit about, um, you know, what your history is or something, just a couple of seconds so that listeners know. Yeah, sure. So I, I'm the, the CEO at Hedgehog, the AKA chief hedgehog co-founder with Mike and, and Josh and, uh, you know, started the company, um, after a pretty good stint at Cisco working after looking after, um, automation strategy for, for mass scale networks. How many years were you at Cisco? Just curious. Six years total, uh, oh, after okay. they acquired Jasper, which is, um, nice. the world's leading IOT connectivity platform. Okay. I was there for 16 years. That's a lot longer. <laughs> <laughs> it felt more like a prison. Yeah, Cisco does it to people. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you, get, you get comfortable quickly there. <laughs> yeah, you do. And then Mike, where are you, Mike? I'm not, I'm trying to place where you physically are. I am in Redwood City, California, in the valley. Okay. In the valley. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. That's like just uh, north of Palo Alto. Okay. I see a turntable. So you must be an audio freak and a bunch of albums. Yeah. I have a like a bunch of albums here. Uh, it's like six in this room. Oh, wow. Now I only yeah. have one turntable. Thanks, but one is not enough. It's like, (laughs) and like most of them, I kind of like bought like in broken condition or a couple couple of them put together myself out of just parts. I have a U turn with an acrylic platter and a, and a grado. Those those are actually really good. The, the design decisions they've put into the turntable are really crazy. Like they have like inverted bearing and like, and the unit pivot arm. Yeah, which is crazy for a touring table. It's like five hundred bucks. Yeah, it uh, is. It's it's really insane. It's it's it's, it's really well engineered. Like I really yeah. like those. So I th- we talked a little bit about what we should talk about on the show before we started. And now I've already forgotten. So Mike, what what do you have? Now we're going to do another show with y'all on on Sonic specifically, but let's talk about I don't know cloud native or whatever else. There's other really cool stuff. Yeah, let's do cloud native. Whatever that means nowadays. <laughs> <laughs> so, so what does cloud native mean to you? Well, cloud native means like so. There used to be a time when like people did things in data centers and things ran in like VMware and there was on-prem. Like a, it was like a on-prem, yeah, and and like a lot of those things kind of evolved out of the world of Windows because like we that's what VMware was. Uh, essentially designed for and uh it sort of like calcified the way people did things in windows environments for like next couple of decades and then cloud came and cloud was like basically a complete rethink it's like you know you have all this like pools of resources you just do whatever on them and like a lot of the configurations and these sort of like knobs that you had were like People are like freaked out by them, like originally, like, oh my God, it's so insufficient. How can you do like networking with like no layer two? Like, how can you like just like allocate VMs 
with no control of the hypervisor. It turns out like it's totally fine. It works and it's simplified. And over time, a collection of tools, operational tools uh, emerged around that. So like, how do you uh, deploy applications? How do you monitor applications? How do you debug them? How do you manage them? And how do you do it like no matter what cloud you run on? And um, it's sort of epitomized with Kubernetes. And I think it was like Kubernetes folks that uh, kind of invented the cloud native foundation and cloud native became the name for this. And uh, it just became a thing. So it's the modern ways of yeah. doing application deployment. And uh, So if I had one uh, thing that I could choke VMware about, it would be the layer two. Yeah. <laughs> well... It's it's sort of like you know throwback to to the decade that it came from, right? It's like yeah, yeah I know. Um, I know. don't forget that their, their main value proposition was uh, vMotion, and they they made enough a lot of money selling people on the vision that you could just like move VMs anywhere, even though the use case for vMotion is actually pretty thin. Uh, there yeah. is nothing wrong with like killing uh, compute resources and resurrecting them elsewhere. I mean, come on, who doesn't want to be able to move a layer two VM from one from California to Atlanta, Georgia, and like just make it work? Yeah, just just for disaster recovery, because we can (laughs) predict a disaster two hours before. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. (laughs) I know it's going to be an earthquake. Better move the VMs. Yeah, so let's talk about routing in the cloud. I mean, how is it going? How is it moving forward? Or, or is there a lot of stuff going on in the routing space in the cloud? Because I know that most of the folks listening to this are going to be network engineers. So, like, what, yeah, what, so, what's going so, on? So, so, like, from the, from the vantage point of people deploying in the cloud, like, networking just sort of works. It's there. It's like somebody else's computer and like somebody else's network, and you're running on top of that. So it's like, as far as like, if you're like really into cloud native stuff, you don't really need to do anything, right? It's it's already in there. And if you're like deploying Kubernetes, obviously, like the CNIs uh, do have some routing functions built into them. For example, like if you're using Calico, um, obviously it has the Bird, uh, which is the BGP daemon, uh, and like you can configure some. BGP-ish stuff in there. So like, you know, you, your clusters can see each other. You can advertise routes across clusters and to the outside of your clusters. Uh, but it's 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 all sort of like rudimentary and very, very, very simple. Actually, I think I, I didn't realize that Calico uses Bird. Do you have any thoughts about the history behind that? Because Bird is an odd choice. Uh I think it just so like if if you remember the history of Project Calico, so it was started by like guys from MetaSwitch. Uh, remember like Christopher Lindenstolpe, an old friend of mine who like I know for like uh, like two decades now. Uh, we go back to like Alcatel and like even before um, the guys been around. So like when they were building Calico, initially it was kind of weird because it was like trying to find itself home. So it tried to be like the uh, the plugin for the OpenStack, they tried to be Neutron, it tried to be like many things in life. And then it sort of like found itself home in like cloud native um, with like minor alterations. Uh, it became like it adapted to like the uh, CNI format and it just, you know, that's that's the number one CNI now from what I gather. Um, yeah. Hmm. Yes, and, it's and, 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 and the bird was just sort of like, 
tagged along from like the early stages of the project. Um, well, I don't, I don't, I don't think they like FRR that much for whatever reason. I, I, I don't know. Um, yeah. Actually, that would be like an interesting question to ask Christopher. Yeah. Um, well, a lot of people in the early days went to Bird because FR routing didn't exist. And Quagga was well, not necessarily a good choice at that time. Yeah. Because the community was kind of falling apart and wasn't a lot of support, you know, and it was just, there were just issues. Uh, maybe, but, 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 but uh, the uh, Calico is not that old. I mean, it's hmm. like, what? Oh, yeah, I guess it is like older than FRR. Probably. Yeah, FRR wasn't, FRR didn't fork off Quagga till like, like three or four years ago, five years yeah, ago, that's, something that's like true. that. That's so true. Yeah. If Calico is older than that, yeah, yeah then it's not. So, I mean, is there anything else about networking for the person going around in the cloud that's really important for them to know? I know there's all these things about direct on-ramp, things like that. Is there anything like that you would say, oh, no, you need to go look at this, like very strong? Well, or... so all of the cool stuff in the, in, the, in, the, in the cloud network is happening closer to the application. There are like plenty of projects to look at. Um, especially like stuff that doesn't try to ca cater to the infrastructure people. Um, like things like there's this company called Loophole Labs. They make like really fascinating things for like application networking. It's kind of like taking service mesh like concepts, but like making them practically usable by, by the uh, application developers. Like they have this thing called Link, which and, and Frisbee. And link is basically this like service mesh-like constructs where you can like insert your own code to provide policies. They use WASM, which is like WebAssembly, so you can like insert your code. It's like super flexible, super fast. I mean, the the, the guy optimized it to a point where like it like has like super little overhead. Um, this kind of stuff is fascinating, and like there are other stuff is like all about like building this function like function written in any language and walk like anywhere in the world by like attaching this to the network. It's it's really fascinating. The way people think about applications in general is uh, changing. Because like, you know, we used to think like, hey, you compile this gigantic thing, you stick it into VM and you run it somewhere. Now it's like, you know, all this like little things running all over the place. And now it's like, like basically boils down to like functions and like those functions are reusable, arrangeable, and you like treat them as objects which didn't used to happen before. Yeah. Uh, things were like so static. Now you can like build applications essentially on the fly and attach them to data. It um, always feels like to me that the cloud is such a high level abstraction on top of the physical hardware that it's hard to optimize things in a way that makes sense. Um, when you start building microservices and you build 10 or 15 or 20 or 100 services or 1,000 services that connect to each other, you know, I expect to be able to get down to the network and be able to optimize the network to do like reduce latency and get the jitter down and make sure I have my pathing and my pod structures and stuff like that correct. And I feel like you don't have any of that in the network, in the cloud side, um, when you work at networking. I mean, is there any approach to that that you're seeing? Or is that more like, yeah, just kind of what you get? Just try to make it as fast as you can. And like, <laughs> you, you, you know, like, even, even like if you look at application stacks, it's not that like you're running things written in assembly and like super optimized yeah. for, you know, yeah. latency. And, but, you know, like the, the general stuff, like you obviously need to analyze what's going on in your network, but the access, the, the, 
the facilities that you have access to, it's not that you can change the underlying network, right? So you can only change whatever is going on within your application right. by addressing like, you know, buffers, exactly. whatever, like FUTs yeah. with like TCP, if you're like well encapsulated from the rest of the uh, of the stack and you're not going to be at the mercy mm-hmm. of like Amazon doing something under the hood that like... Would you, would you say that's a limitation though for a application developer, you I know, trying to build I, a high performance application? I think it's a practical limitation because it's a trade-off, right? So you yeah. you trade off convenience for a set of imperfections and expense. I think like expense is probably a much more kind of terrifying thing. Uh, the way the cloud providers charge you for things like egress, and yeah. you know, like 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 you can make a database query, for example, that can cost you like tens of thousands of dollars if if you're not careful. Yeah. Uh, it's uh it's it's terrible. Yeah, I'm, not, I'm not convinced cloud is cheaper. I just think it oh, takes it's, a it's lot. Oh, it's not. Oh no. Yeah. Like, it it's, takes, it's it's convenient. Yeah. It's it's easy to get started. Like I want to write an app like I I like dump it in the cloud it works really well and then you reach certain scale and it gets very expensive. Like for example, if you're like AI based SaaS company like 20 30% of your margin goes to the cloud. Yeah. Uh, if you yeah. if you run things off cloud, it's a lot cheaper, uh, and you have a lot more control. The challenge is now like you have to find people who still know how to do this stuff. Yeah, isn't that a shame? It it is a shame. It's sort of like a lost art, <laughs> and it's like and why like you know it's it's like it's like it's not hard to like set up a bunch of servers and kind of exhibit them and configure them to do what you want. It's like like once you add network, once you add like you know, like storage databases, like it's it's starting to get like pretty involved and people just don't like doing that. But there are a bunch of people they're attempting to. So like, it's it's kind of like, there are a bunch of people like moving into the cloud and like yeah. like all the yeah. enterprise companies, like like it's part of a digital transformation mm-hmm. and want to end up in the cloud. But there is, there is sort of like another audience that's trying to jump off the cloud because like either it, it's into the margins or... Like it just like adds too much latency because you want to be closer to where data is, and like you want your application to perform a little better uh, yeah. and cost effectively. Yeah, I would say performance would be the biggest thing for me. In fact, it's interesting that you say that because we were talking to Mike Bishong in the last hedge, and he, one of the points he brought up—I th- I don't know if it'll be published in this order, but whatever—one of the points Mike brought up in his in the episode we just recorded with him was that the world is moving away from network designers to network operators. And everything has, you know, the whole world is now around making operations easier. And I think that's true to a degree, but I also don't necessarily think that I like that movement. <laughs> well, it's, it's it's sort of the same argument as like on the, on the compute side and application side, right? Like, yeah, I'm going to use this stack because it's so convenient. But at some point, there comes time where the cost of that decision is going to hurt you, yes. right? So you need right. to start optimizing. Yeah. And I think designing systems like in a way that's layered enough so you can fix and tune things under the hood is where the art is. And I think while you need to provide like this like consumerized experience and like have like an easy button for everything, you still need to have ways of kind of like diving under the hood and dissecting yeah. the thing and like, you know, figure out like, you know, like if 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 like you set up your network correctly. Yeah. Like right. you need to change the policies. Like you need to change you know, 
you need to change things, like and 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 yeah. doing deep that so versus, it doesn't affect the applications. Yeah, deep buffer versus shallow buffer, and five yeah. stage versus three stage, and where do you put workload right. in pods, and what needs to be physically closer to other things, and yeah, you know how you right. get a, a, lot, a lot of stuff is like black magic, right? Yeah, or, oh yeah, or or, right. or wood carving, right? It's yeah. in general, like everything in computer science is like wood carving, right? You like yeah. you you do it long enough, and you like lost enough fingers in the process. You know what not to do, right? Hey, which is which is a big I haven't deal. been around long enough. Is that hey. what you're saying? <laughs> hey, well, you know, I have a longer gray beard. <laughs> well, I keep mine trimmed, but yeah, <laughs> but yeah, yeah it's, it is that yeah. is a lot of the problem. And this is like another thing that people don't understand about networking is that a lot of people jump into the career field, and I'm always asked like, "How do I become an architect? What do I do?" And the reality is, a lot of times, it's just time. It's just you've done it. And you've been through enough stuff that you know what to look for. And and we don't often see that. Uh, well, we don't often with, understand with, that. With, with architecture, like any kind of architecture, you have to be a practitioner first. You have to yeah. know what you're doing, right? And you have, yeah. you have to understand the sort of implications and cost of your decisions. And you have to have like sufficient battle scars. So like if, if you never ran a network, you never designed a network, like you never like dealt with a like, you know, banging things in the CLI, you can't really architect. Like it used to be like, you know, it's it's like practical domain knowledge. Yeah, like an yeah. agent. Yeah. And and, 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 and a lot not, of people not... assume that it's just like something that can be like learned by sort of remote observation. And that's just not the case. And and there's this kind of round assumption that um, I can become an architect by learning how to configure things. If I learn how to configure enough things, then I become an architect, and that's really not true either. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 not the quantity, right? It's like how yeah. much. It's 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 understanding cause and effect, right? When you yeah. tweak something, what's going to happen, yeah, right? You have to you have yeah. to essentially have the muscle memory. It's right? what we were just talking about, right? Which is the trade-offs, being able to see the trade-offs and predict and think about what those trade-offs could be. And that comes from experience because you don't well, always yeah. you don't always get that in other but, ways. But, but but think about it. It's like it's basic engineering, right? It's like yeah. in, engineering is all about understanding trade-offs, and that's why you're not like building perfect science. You're building a solution that's practical, yeah. and you understand like you know their cost constraints, their performance constraints, and what's possible with current technology, and you know, and and you're also confined by like you know budgets and the uh, and the update cycles. Yeah. So yeah. you, need, you, fact, you need to build stuff like relatively forward looking, but not like yeah. crazy science project things. Yeah. Yeah. And life like cycle they, management is a huge deal. Right? Yeah. That we That's, don't really pay much attention to. Yeah. Life and, cycles. And, 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 and part of like infrastructure is like, you know, it needs to be up. It needs to work. Like, it's not like, you know, when you're like testing some software, it's like, you know, it's like, it like fails, it fails. You can fix it in production with equipment. With infrastructure, fixing it in production is a very expensive value prop. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. You don't do that. RFC nineteen twenty five. I don't remember which rule it is. It has to work. It's one right. of the one, one of the twelve networking rules. Yeah, it, it has to work. Yeah, it has so, to work. It has like, to work. Yeah. If 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 the network goes away, like I mean, unless you're like applications can use like quantum entanglement and telepathy at scale, like yeah. Which yeah. they don't at the moment. 
So is there anything else hot going on in cloud that you're aware of? Because I know we were talking about some other stuff right before we started that uh, sounded pretty interesting. So I just wanted to pick up. I think the coolest thing that's going on in the cloud is like people are actually rethinking the cloud value prop in general. And like they come to the realization that not everything belongs in the cloud. There are certain things that are better off like done somewhere else. And not just because of cost, but because like, you know, performance, because of convenience and just like kind of it's it's just simpler. Like obviously clouds want you to like put all your data in the cloud and run all of your stuff in the cloud. Yeah. And and for the stuff that you can't, like they want to sell you like outposts and like Azure stacks and all that stuff or like Antos. But those things are kind of like for what they do, they're like expensive way too restrictive. Like the beauty of like building out your environment is you can do whatever you want, like that suits your uh, your goals. But at the same time, you can still have like a lot of flexibility, but provide very similar experience to what you have in the cloud. So let's talk about that a little bit, because I think uh-huh. it's interesting. Because building out your own stuff and flexibility implies open source to a lot of people or vendor to other people. So how would you do the trade-off between the open source? I mean, how, what role do you think open source is playing in this? And how would you think about the trade-off between open source and vendor if you're going about saying, all right, I want to build my own environment that's as cloud-like as possible, that's going to be able to support my developers, but I'm going to be able to get the performance I want out of it? Right. So that's, 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 that's a very critical question. So I'm, I'm biased. I believe in open source that's, maybe that's a little okay. too much. Uh, I think uh, most, like if you look at like most of the application infrastructure stack, that sort of like went almost completely down the uh, open source route. Like yeah, Linux, you know, Linux it, dominates the application. Like side it's now. it's Linux, it's Kubernetes, it's yeah. like yeah. containers. All of this stuff is open source. The observability stacks, the operational stacks around it, it's all open source. Yeah. But people still manage to make money around it, right? Because, you know, if, if, if I'm to deploy something, I probably need support, right? So there are vendors and you're working with vendors. But the cool thing about this is like, if you don't like the vendor, you can support yourself. Or you can find somebody else to do that, right? Like you and, have and choice, you, can choose you have freedom. for yourself how yeah. deep and, your support goes in-house. Yeah. And, uh, and, and you know, if, if something gets discontinued or if like respective company dies, like you can always build your own community to support it, mm-hmm. or you can do it yourself. You can find like some other people who like support it, and like you can gang up with them and uh, yeah. basically just you know continue developing the project or projects. That's that's the wonderful thing. And plus, you know, open source keeps you honest, right? Like I can go to like GitHub and see what you have. Uh, so in, and if you're making claims that like something exists and doesn't like uh, that becomes very obvious very fast so like there is like not nearly as much in terms of like smoke and mirrors that like normal enterprise vendors would put you through yeah yeah well i think there are downsides to open source number one you have to have the skill set to be able to go read the code and find out if the features in there instead of just trusting the burden is on you yeah yeah it's right it's on you it's you know buyer beware and the other thing is it's very hard i find to build a community around an open source project. FR routing is one of the few, I was on the FR routing meeting this morning, we had 30 people in the FR routing meeting, which is a weekly meeting. It's really unusual for an open source project to have a community of people who meet 30 people every week. Usually open source projects are two or three people, you know, 
or something like that. And, and so it is very hard to build those communities. On the other hand, I think that's partially the fault of the companies that use them, use the open source because they don't contribute back in terms of people or right. money. Right. At all. Because you, 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 you care about your products and you care about your bottom line. And, yeah. and, and by the way, to your point, like there are communities that have done it well and there are communities that didn't do it well. Like the most sort of great example of like how not to do it was the OpenStack Foundation. Even though there were a lot of people and a lot of participants, it was like dominated by large companies that were trying to push their own agenda. And there were way too few actual practitioners that were using using, using the thing and were contributing the code. Uh, interesting, if you look at Kubernetes, and like Kubernetes is not comparable to OpenStack or to like virtualization because what, what, what Kubernetes is, it's like it's sort of like infrastructure for people who deploy apps. And like, so the people contributing to the project are usually closer to the ones who are the consumers of the technology. So, and, 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 and that audience is usually very much capable of writing code. So, like the practitioner, the 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 rate with which practitioners practitioners uh, actually contribute to Kubernetes is actually pretty stunning. So there is yeah. like a user base that's very loyal, and they contribute code and they fix issues. They like fix documentation because they're doing it for themselves. Um, yeah. That's a big deal. Majority of open source projects in the infrastructure don't have that luxury. It's like usually kind of like, hey, like there is a large company or. Cheap vendor, and they're trying to like do what's good for them, and they don't really do what's good for the humankind. Yeah. Whereas, like in Kubernetes, you kind of like, oh, I'm gonna like, I'm working for company X. Tomorrow, I'm gonna work for company Y. Still gonna use the same stack. Yeah, right. So, like, I'm making my life easier over yes. a longer period of time. Yeah. So, like, yeah. there's there the, the event horizon and like beyond what your employment contract is. Yeah. Big and uh, the other problem with having. Uh, a open source project that's dominated by big companies is that every big company wants to differentiate their product into the marketplace. So then what happens is, is what I saw with OpenStack anyway, is that you get all these subcommittees who want to drive particular pieces and you fragment the community in a major way. And it's really hard to prevent that fragmentation from happening um, in, a lot, in, in these larger top-down driven things. Uh, these larger top-down driven projects. I don't know if that's been your observation as well, or if that's like. Well, it's 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 absolutely true. Like there are like number of examples. Like the 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 one that always comes to mind is OpenStack because it was such a cluster, yeah. Yeah. right? It was it was dominated by large companies, and like they wanted to push their things, like. So if I want to push, to push X, I just go, to, go start a subcommittee, and I find a small yeah. group of coders to work on it. Yeah, and you know I've got people specifying it and people working on it, and then like then the whole project becomes a total fragmented yeah. mess. And but I think like there was like one fundamental thing that was completely broken OpenStack. It was the architecture. Um, like Kubernetes, while it's messy and chaotic, it's architected to be extended and extensible. So you can you can you have well defined interfaces and 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 well defined uh, means by which you can extend the framework. So you can like insert new functionality, replace existing functionality, which basically rely on that modularity. So like this way, even though things work slightly differently in terms of like, you know, like like there there's some differences in 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 feature parity and and functionality, but like generally things work the same way. Like you would expect a CNI to do the same thing. You yeah. would expect it to rely on much the same networking 
Kubernetes networking network model. Uh, if, 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 if you have containers, like they work the way container interface basically is defined, container runtime interface is defined. Like all those things work in predictable ways. Like in, in, in OpenStack, it just kind of lacked. Like the, there was like kind of like overall architecture, but they weren't thinking about like how like to design abstraction where like things can plug in. Yeah. Um, like there was a little bit, but like not to the extent that that's on Kubernetes. And but like there are other projects that are and they, and they are dominated by vendors like like Kafka. Like it has like huge participation. But well, it's like, EPF, I think, is pretty OPPF. dominated by is dominated yeah, by EPF a single is vendor. amazing. Yeah. Like. I was like, I was like really into BPF. So when we're doing Project Nuaro, I hired Thomas Graff, who is the uh, creator of Project Cilium, and uh, we we wanted to create Cilium. And by the way, I I named Cilium Cilium because I I wanted to call it Mycelium, but Mycelium is like hard to say, and like <laughs> and I like the idea of the mushroom internet. Uh, <laughs> and and after a few drinks, like okay, Cilium. That, that sounds good. So, and the reason, the reason why we wanted to have that was like before Kubernetes was a big thing. We were trying to work around some of the things in OVS uh, because you know OVS was the sort of like you know the virtual switch uh, for, for 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 Linux and like there were like a lot of these controllers. But we wanted to have like the sort of like more tight control over network traffic with like more sort of like interesting policies that OpenFlow and extensions to OpenFlow could not solve. And 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 at that time there was a company called Plum Grid, uh Perryman Clues. Hmm? Uh, I remember Plum Perryman Clues. Yeah. Remember Perry? He, he's a mm-hmm. cool dude. So they had this thing called uh IO Visor, uh which mm-hmm. is basically like thing over BPF, right? And we kind of met with it a couple of times. Like that's that's a cool reasonable way. So let's let's just let's just do that and use BPF. And then it just took off, and and oddly, Cisco saw no value in this. When like Noara got rolled into Cisco, like 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 people are like, oh, "Don't you want to use like like user space? Like why do you want to do this? This is this is like a weird way of doing things. Why do you want to put things back into the kernel? Like this is such an anti pattern." And you know, look at where like Cisco CNIs are, and like where uh, Cilium is. Yeah, well, Cilium two things there, right? Yeah, yeah, two things there, right? Cisco is always trying to draw intelligence back into the network and into the hardware, so you have to buy the hardware-software combination to keep you in the vendor. I mean, that's just the vendor's job. I'm not saying that's right or wrong or bad or good. No, it's, 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 it's just what the they do. It's, job. it's, it's what they do, right? right? Yeah. And, 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 and they've done well for so long, it's just like, it's a pattern that works for them. Yeah, it does. It's, it's, um, it's the second natural. thing is, yeah, at the time that was going on, there was a huge movement to get things out of the kernel to go to mock microkernel and to go to all the other microkernels and get things out of the kernel, simplify the kernel. The kernel, I mean, they were even trying to pull the scheduler out of the kernel. I mean, like everything. And like there's extremes to this where we push so hard down one direction and then we hit a wall and then we tend to go the opposite direction all the way again and like we never figure out where the middle is. But, but BPF kind of did it in a clever way because like they 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 basically created a VM that where you can like stick the bytecode. Yeah. Um, right. And you executed the kernel. Like obviously there are severe limitations. You're gonna have loops, like there are, the, the coding experience is very restrictive, but it's yes. by design because you're running in a kernel. But yeah. the kind of stuff you can do is incredible. And the flexibility you get is like far beyond what you can achieve with like things like OVS or like 
or or IP tables or whatever. It's like it's like this kind of like you almost have like this uh, firewall for the sockets. Yeah, yeah. But isn't it largely dominated by one or two companies again, though? EBPF. Uh EBPF is dominated by startups and like forward thinking. There are like very white white. There's a wide array of folks that uh, contributes to it hmm. from like different like there are people who are from like likes of like Facebook and you know like Google uh, and 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 there are people like from startups that are like people from Cisco that contribute. Okay. Um, like yeah, sure. Like Celium is naturally dominated by Isovalent, which is you know that's mm-hmm. that's their project. God bless uh, Thomas's heart. The project <laughs> is doing really well, and uh, I think what they're doing is like very relevant, uh, yeah. at least for cool. Kubernetes networking. Um, cool, good. Well, I think we can actually wrap up there, unless you have some other topic that you really want to hit and talk about before we do so. Well, one thing is, I think like the the topic I care about a lot is how the infrastructure is going to be consumerized and what what is the yeah. user experience that that has to sort of be adopted for cloud repatriation for like private infrastructure to be rejuvenated because you know like look like people jumping off the cloud like they have nothing to jump onto like the as we talked about like you know the 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 skill of doing infrastructure is lost yeah. there is now needs to be a new way of thinking about infrastructure and i think like for a lot of people jumping off the cloud like the common sort of lost common denominator is like they're all going to be using them some sort of like kubernetes some cloud native tools and kubernetes is already kind of like this infrastructure consumption api and like like that's how like application well, owners and people yeah. people applications that consume infra so like why not take it to its logical conclusion it's like kuberneticize everything in a way that's usable of course um including network including compute and the computer is kind of sort of trying to do it to like the uh cluster api um but it's like it's going to be very interesting. I think like Yeah, I think I think one question the industry has to answer before this is over with is do we end up taking open source and wrapping it in more of an Apple kind of environment? Or do we stick with more of the Linux kind of environment where everything is kind of unbundled? And I think that's something that we haven't really crossed enough bridges yet to know the answer how that's going to work. I mean, you know, like Amazon Cloud, you go out to Amazon Cloud or Google Cloud or, or whatever, and you have all these open source projects that are kind of wrapped into a commercialized front end, and they're still open source projects, but they're kind of controlled and maintained through a pretty little GUI where somebody doesn't right. know a lot about the open source project and stuff like that. So you've kind of encapsulated open source in like this, this cool little packaging thing commercially. And so your primary access is through that. Or do we, you know, what is the Linux kind of, the Linux kind of more loose, pick the stuff you want, do get app, you know, app install or whatever. I I think the Apple model is going to work for cloud providers. And it already sort of goes this way. It's like a peonated wall garden of what you can do. Uh, There are like some interesting things. Like, for example, there is like a company that's going to build public cloud for JavaScript only. They're using this uh, bun 
oh my. framework. Oh, that yeah. sounds so bad. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, but like it's it's really popular because that's what kids use. Yeah, they uh, do actually. Don't and they? and like there's a company called Oven.sh that uses Bun framework, but like they're building all this like infrastructure underneath to run this. It's 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 actually quite fascinating. And then I think like through like serverless or evolution of serverless, serverless kind of interesting thing, like, you know, with like Wasm, serverless can get like very, very, very powerful and probably a lot less expensive than it is today. So using this kind of things on top of a bunch of opinionated open source stuff kind of makes sense. And that would be the Apple model for things that are deployed off cloud in private environments. I think it's just going to be the Linux way. So while like there will be like for infrastructure, yeah, sure, there will be implement there will be opinionated implementations and people will use that, but there will be highly customizable, highly tweakable. So like I I'm not an Apple user, so I have like uh Pixel 7. I'm, like, <laughs> no, I'm one of no, those. It's fine. I mean, I again yeah, so, it's, so it's like I'm like the idea of like wall garden is a little terrifying to me at times. Yeah. Especially yeah. for things that are like uniquely mine. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I have, I have an, a Mac, and I have an Apple sitting right there. And well, I have I a have MacBook. A, I, yeah, I, I just... have a Windows machine sitting right there, and then Windows has Windows system for <laughs> Linux on it, and I often interact with my Windows machine through the Linux command line or through PowerShell rather than you know using the GUI. So to me, it's kind of like six one half dozen the other. They all have different purposes and different things they're good at and different things they're bad at. And you just pick what you got to pick to get there. Yeah, ex- exactly. It's like, it's like, I don't think you can have like one, one thing that like yeah. covers everything. Right. But like, interestingly, CLIs are making such a comeback because there know. was like a, there was, there was this time when people were like, oh yeah, we need to have UIs. We need to have like everything API oh, my God. and like APIs are important, but like, look at the cool kids now. Like, it's all CLI. Yeah. It's well, not no. a, It's not like Cisco-like CLI. It's like, you know, you look at Kubernetes, like, KubeCuddle is, is pretty cool. Yeah. Like, like everyone knows how to use it. And it's, like, extensible. It's nice. Like, it's it's very usable. Yeah, I was going to say, remember when Cisco was doing the GUI for iOS Classic? Oh, God. Like, <laughs> I, 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 look, it's just too complex. Don't, don't, don't too forget, I was... I was I was like spiritual father of ACI. So, <laughs> so enough said. Okay, like, we won't yeah, hold cool, it against man. you. Like, it's, we'll it's we'll like, try you know, not to hold it against you. Too have much. to apologize to the world for like <laughs> the or Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> all right. Well, that's all cool. So let's wrap up. And um, okay. Mike, uh, how can people follow you? Get in touch with you if they want to. Do you blog any place or anything like that? Uh, on Twitter at the underscore Dvorkin. Okay. Awesome. Because I am did working. The working. Okay. And uh, I blog every once in a while. Uh, you can find stuff on like hedge, githedgehog.com, okay. like the okay. hedgehog website. Like I mostly put my rants on Twitter. <laughs> okay. Uh, That's like, cool. I, like at I times I have like, like Twitter to rats and yeah. just go off. Yeah. Cool. All right. Um, well, I think that's it. Uh, let's see. I don't know, uh, Mark. Did you want to say anything else before we? Oh, it's just, it's just always fun listening to the Dvorkin stream of conscious, isn't it? <laughs> well, next time we have Mike on, we'll do something much more specific. We'll talk about Sonic, which will be which will be interesting as well. So we'll do that in the near future. Oh my god, terrifying! <laughs> <laughs> no, that's okay. 
All right, great. And um, I'm Russ White. You can always find me here at uh, The Hedge or at rule11.tech. You can find me on LinkedIn. I am on Twitter, but I never log in. It's just a thing with me. I just don't do social media very much. I mean, I wrote my dissertation on social media. Anybody who listens to this knows I wrote my dissertation on social media. And I just like, it's like, once you understand the sausage factory, it's kind of like, no thanks. I'm kind of done with that. <laughs> so, so I'm doing of social media stuff. But all right. Well, thanks, Mike. Thanks, Mark. Thanks for setting this up. And we will set up another one for the Sonic Show. And Everybody who's listening to this, thanks for joining and listening to this episode of The Hedge, and we will catch you next time. Subscribe to The Hedge on your favorite podcast service or follow along at rule11.tech.